Hello and welcome to More Than Politics, a podcast for those of us who want something more than what we've come to expect from politics and from our political discourse. My name is Julie Varner Walsh. I'm your host. Today's episode is the second in a four-part series on Reconstruction, the period immediately following the Civil War, in which the Confederate South was brought back into the fold and millions of formerly enslaved people began to make their way in a new America. While Reconstruction is perhaps less well-known to most Americans than slavery or Jim Crow or the Civil Rights Movement of the 1960s, its impact has nevertheless continued to be felt in our politics and society, especially when it comes to racial inequality. For this series, we're talking with historian D.D. Miller about the legacies Reconstruction has left us when it comes to voting, criminal justice, housing, and education. You can find our first installment of the series on voting in More Than Politics, episode number 19. In this second installment of our series, we'll be talking about criminal justice, the legacy that Reconstruction-era black codes and policies of imprisonment and forced labor have left in American society, right down to the modern day. Dee Dee Miller is a wife, a mother of two, a historian, and a former teacher. She holds an MA in history and specializes in 18th and 19th century transatlantic slavery and slave revolutions, African American history, and black political identity. Dee Dee is a black woman and convert to Catholicism who has a deep love for her community and her faith. She is a founding member and president of Catholics United for Black Lives and is deeply invested in using the principles of Catholic social teaching to address the racial divide in America. Dee Dee seeks balance and nuance in everything, and she believes strongly in living and advocating for a consistent life ethic that defends the dignity of every human life from conception to natural death, and everything in between. Dee Dee loves having conversations about religion and politics, and she enjoys gardening, knitting, sewing, and spending time with her amazing husband and two beautiful boys. Our conversation was recorded on November 30th. All right, well, let's move on to criminal justice. Can you tell us what was happening in the world of criminal justice in the wake of the Civil War and how that legacy is seen today? Mm -hmm. Uh, So during the war itself, I think one thing that, that sometimes gets overlooked when we're talking about the Civil War is that at the start of the war, there wasn't really a union plan for what to do with the slaves. Mm. Um, there was this idea that maybe they would just stay enslaved. And so Mm. actually, you know, some of uh, those slaves that presented themselves to union minds in the early days were sent back to their masters under the Fugitive Slave Act. Mm. Eventually, the, the military stops doing that and they say, okay, we'll hold on to you. But then they, they don't hold on to these ex-slaves as freedmen but they still list them as property in the first couple of years of the war. And in the first year or so, they conscript their labor without paying a wage. So in other words, they're kind Mm -hmm. of enslaved by the union. So the union is building the plane while it's flying, right? They're trying to figure out 
what to do with these slaves that keep presenting themselves in the tens of thousands and eventually hundreds of thousands to union lines um, mm -hmm. seeking freedom. And so in, in terms of, of this idea of criminal justice, well, they had to figure out what to do with these slaves once they got them. Eventually they put them in camps um, and there you, you see sort of a semblance of black codes forming in the camps, right? This sort of um, uh, idea of policing the morality of the slaves who are, who are in your camps, right? So, um, and so that's sort of the, the early days of sort of criminal justice. There was an interesting case that I read, I believe it was in Washington, D.C., where the former slaves that had presented themselves to the union ended up being housed in a prison. <laughs> so in a way, they ended up becoming inmates, um, mm. you know, because they had presented themselves to the union. Um, and the union also did things like try to hire out their labor. And so it was, it was kind of touch and go so far as what exactly the legal status was of, of the slaves that were in the possession of the union. Were they, were they fugitives? Were they free? Did they have the rights of citizens? Uh, did their movements and actions need to be curtailed? Um, so that was sort of a, uh, an open question. Uh, eventually, we get sort of a, a, a clearer understanding of what emancipation would look like. But again, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation applied to the rebellious states. Right? So then also, what do you, so it's still That's sort right. of it, the same it, question. It didn't apply to the northern states, right? Right. It didn't apply to the, nor to the northern states or the borders. So, right. so then you still have this open question. What is the legal status of this mm -hmm. human being that has presented themselves to me, right? Well, eventually the, the, they do become ex-slaves and the slave system falls. And what we begin to see are uh, the emergence of more and more black codes. And again, the black codes were designed to regulate, to regulate the lives of black people. So um, one of the most popular one was requiring them to be under some sort of labor contract, right? In other mm -hmm. words, mm -hmm not allowing them to just get up and leave from the plantation, but they have to agree to be laboring someplace. Mm -hmm. And especially after the period of reconstruction, we see then um, this idea that black life just would feel like it was being criminalized. You know, we get all of these laws against things like walking by the railroad tracks, or speaking too loudly in the presence of white women, mm. or um, you know, loitering, uh, and we see in in several southern states that these sorts of things that might have started out as misdemeanors become felonies. Mm. So then we see that someone could be made a felon for loitering, mm. right? Um, and with that comes. Uh, certain consequences. In many cases, it is a jail sentence, oftentimes a hard labor sentence. Um, you know, the, the 13th Amendment is credited for ending slavery, but it does have that clause in there that slavery is still allowed as punishment for a crime, uh, so long as you have been convicted of that crime. So these sort of changes in the law develop over time, 
but it's not it's not too long after reconstruction before southern governments realize that they can conscript labor and sort of create a situation of slavery by another name um, by arresting um, black people for violations of things like vagrancy laws and pig laws. Um, right. So like, for instance, you might steal, let's say you stole a, a piglet, which is not worth very much money. You could be imprisoned for five years for that. Mm. Um, or you could be sentenced for har- to hard labor for taking a fence post. Wow. And in some cases, weren't these prisons like physically located on plantations? Absolutely. Right. Uh, yes. Some of these prisons are located on plantations. Another major thing that's happening um, after the end of the Civil War in the South is um, the creation of a railway system, a railroad system. So some of these folks were imprisoned at laydown yards uh, where they're building the railway. So it's sort of mm. you're being imprisoned because you have committed a felony, so says the state, but then you're being held on the private property of an individual that has leased your labor. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, this process, this um, phenomenon uh, came to be known as convict leasing. And just mm-hmm. sort of as an example of how quickly this grew, um, in the state of Alabama, in the year 1874, the state made about $14,000 from convict leasing. So those are the fees that are paid uh, and that are for leasing out the labor. By the time you get to 1890, the state of Alabama has made $194,000. Wow. In today's money, that would be $4.1 million. Right? So we see just this system just balloons and multiplies as we see uh, black, uh, black people also some brown people being, being sort of re-enslaved through convict leasing vagrancy laws and pig laws. Um, mm. All told, you end up around the year, let's say um, like eight, 1886 or so, you have about 5,000 convict laborers. And they're basically rebuilding the South. They're making bricks that are going to be used to rebuild buildings. They're laying the railroad. Um, you know, this is, a, this is a, a large number of a population that finds themselves you know, uh, convicted and laboring. And it just, it has to be reinforced that they were convicted on the flimsiest of charges. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oftentimes, there's huge questions as to whether or not they had ever committed any crime at all. Especially when you're talking about loitering and vagrancy. Some people reported being snatched off the street, walking from Mm -hmm. point A to point B being labeled vagrant or being labeled as loitering if they stop outside of a store and have a conversation with a neighbor they need. So these are, you know, the flimsiest of charges um, land folks in this convict leasing system for years on end. Mm. Now, how long did that go on convict leasing? Um, Convict leasing, uh, leasing went on until about World War II. Mm, wow. Yeah, a long, long time. Um, and then the practice sort of falls out of favor at that point. There are some 
um, some challenges in the courts and sort of states move away. Although I will say there are still some states who have chain gangs and sort of chain gangs are kind of the descendant of a, of a convict leasing kind of program. Mm. Well, and yeah. I guess even, I'm not sure if this would fall under the category, but I even been hearing about in the firefighting in the West, mm-hmm. a lot of the firefighters were uh, prisoners. Yeah. And the prison system was not making them available because of COVID restrictions. Yeah. And that was yeah. negatively impacting those mm-hmm. states' abilities to fight fires. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And there are, there are some states where, um, you know, the prisons may also have like a bit of a factory, like they might be making license plates or, or doing other sorts of jobs. I think what happens more often than not is that um, the convicts are not leased out and under the control of a private individual, but rather they're sort of being, you know, ferried to and from a prison in order to work. Um, But I think in some cases that that may not even be the case. I think usually today it's required that they be paid, but they're paid very little. Right. Um, Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's ways in which you can sort of skirt around it. Mm -hmm. Um, But thinking about like connections between today, then and today, um, all of this sort of incarceration of, of black people and these sort of being labeled as felons and as criminals, it does contribute to this idea of black people as being a criminal race. Mm-hmm. I think like by the time you get to the 1890s, that idea of black people as criminals sort of gets baked in. And you mm-hmm. see more and more people making the argument that black people have no capacity for citizenship. Mm-hmm. Right? This, is, this is, you know, 30 years after the political renaissance of black people during the era of reconstruction, right? Where Mm. black people were serving in office and in legislatures and in local government, sort of proving that capacity for citizenship. By the time you get to the 1890s, now there's this question about whether or not black people really have that capacity for citizenship. And then you get Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896, which says that it's legal to segregate these two populations. And so, uh, so by the time you get to the 1890s, then you see segregation is now, you know, in law, that's legal. Black people are viewed more and more as criminals with no capacity for citizenship. And, and you really see that descent into this idea of there being a Jim Crow South. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost like, um, <laughs> gosh, this like, terrible phenomenon, where if you just keep saying something long enough people think it's true you know if you just keep saying it over and over and over again mm-hmm. you yeah. convince people it's real you know yeah. like if you know if you, you're starting off by putting a bunch of people in prison and saying look look see look see they're in prison and then it's you know you get a generation down mm-hmm. and it's become normal and it, yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so look i told you they were criminals you know right meanwhile they're there for nothing at all Right. But I see, I told you they were criminals. Look at how many of them are in prison. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they're being held in deplorable conditions. I mean, this is really slavery by another name. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's rampant disease. Some of these hard labor assignments result in, in huge 
um, deaths. So it's almost like being arrested for vagrancy could be a death sentence in some cases. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know in the state of Alabama, that the death rate amongst convict leasing was something approaching 30% a year. Mm, my goodness. 30% of convicts leased out wow. might die. It's, it's, it's insane. In, and for what? Because they were out selling produce from their farm after dark or they were walking along the railroad. I mean, it's, it's absurd. But like you say, you know, you, you create this absurdity of, of sort of criminalizing just life as a black person. And then you say over and over again, see, this is a criminal race. They've mm -hmm. got to be subjugated. And so you subjugate them. Right. And think of what this would have done to families. I mean, when you're in such a hard scrabble existence where you're possibly sharecropping or working for just just to put the most basic of food on the table, and then you have someone essentially disappeared from your family. Right. How do you how do you make it? Yeah. Yeah. Disappeared indeed. Yeah. There's there's letters that we have from people searching for relatives saying that you know, they know their relative was arrested on such and such a date, but they haven't been able to find them and they can make no contact. It's insane. Mm. Yeah, it's frightening. I, um, part of my ancestry is, um, <laughs> is, is Hessian, like the Hessian soldiers during the revolution. And I had the opportunity years ago to visit the town in Germany where my ancestor came from. And I ended up meeting a very distant relative. And he, um, he had like a visceral reaction. He said, they took our men. He said, there could be a young man working out in the field and they would be essentially taken by the authorities and sent up the river to be shipped over to America to fight because the local Duke would have like a certain number of soldiers he had to provide in his contract with the King. And so he would just, get men however he could get them and they would be sent off and it was interesting to me to see that he you know hundreds of years later would they stay this this gentleman here still had this reaction like they were taken and i just thought about what a traumatic thing that must have been for a community to have your young men just taken from your midst and sent mm -hmm. off you know mm -hmm. and it sounds like um you know that's not the only time where that kind of thing happened <laughs> No, no. And unfortunately for for Black people in America, they had already been subjected to hundreds of years of, of that kind right. of treatment. And right, then yeah. to be experiencing it again, after you've had that taste of freedom, now here right. you are again, back to wondering where your relative has been stolen to, and right. whether right. or not they are alive. And it's, you know, it, it's, a, it's absurd. Um, yeah. But also, you know, it was a system that was really effective. Uh, and, you know, it, this is only, you know, one means by which, you know, sort of black people were resubjugated in the South. You have this sort of, um, you know, black codes, convict leasing sort of thing. But then you also have lynching, just out and out killing mm -hmm. of black people in public, right. you know, right. to send a message, right? So it, mm -hmm. it really is the terrorizing of the people. Mm -hmm. um, and, and for what reason other than, um, you know, sort of fear of, of what black rule would, would be like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man, 
I feel like lynching is one of the most um, painful wounds <laughs> mm-hmm. in our national experience. And um, it's, to me, it's one of those things that's just like a, a wound so painful, you you don't want to touch it, you know what I mean? But yeah. it's um, it's something that deserves reckoning. Yeah, it it most certainly does. Um, the effectiveness of the terror, you know, um, and that's it's something that that Black people in the South really had to live with. And and I think you know, one thing that I think many people don't consider is that you know these folks doing the lynching are people in your community. Mm-hmm. Which means that if you are a, a black person in this community, you're still, you know, going to the store the person who participated in the lynching, mm-hmm. and you're you may even be working in the home of a participant as a domestic servant. Mm-hmm. You know, it's these are these are people in your community that you would see, you know, often, mm-hmm. uh, and these are the ones who are perpetrating such violence against you. Um. My my own family unfortunately has a, a lynching story, um, and it was really the same thing in the 1930s. I had a cousin who fell in love with the woman he thought that he would marry, but it turned out that uh, there was a prominent white man who had decided to lay claim to her, and he was personally affronted that my cousin would dare be in love with one of his girls. Mm. And so they kidnapped him and they killed him. Mm. And everyone knew who it was. All the black people knew and all the white people too. And everyone's just expected to go along and get along after something like that. Mm. You know, I remember for a school project interviewing my aunt and I remember her talking about this. Now, by this point, she's in her 80s. This is in the, the mid-2000s. I'm interviewing her. And she was still gripped by fear about what happened to her first cousin. And she, she whispered into the microphone. And, and then afterwards, she told me to cut out names because she was concerned that something might happen to rel- relatives back home. Mm. still that's you know the effectiveness and the pervasiveness of the terror perpetrated against black bodies in the south that even you know 70 years on she's still concerned about what might happen to the family Mm -hmm. if word gets out Mm -hmm. that she's talked about this Yes, so many of these things, I just, I just think we've sort of let ourselves, or at least we white Americans have let ourselves think for so long that, that these things are remote, mm-hmm. and they're not remote. They're just no. unacknowledged. Right. They're unacknowledged. And I know that there are a lot of, of, uh, of black people in this country with similar stories and their families, similar backgrounds. Mm-hmm. That that legacy of violence, you know, it. These are not things that happened hundreds of years ago. We're talking about things that have happened 
in recent memory. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Civil Rights Bill of 1964, that was just 1964. There are people alive now who remember that, who were protesters in the street, who are still living today. I mean, this is, it's not, you know, stories from way back when. These are things that are still in our memory. Yeah, that's cr- that's crazy for me to think of 1964. I was born in 79. So that's mm-hmm. only 15 years before I was born. Mm-hmm. And 15 years ago from right now was 2005. I mean, it wasn't very long ago, you know? No. And I think of myself as so far removed from that period. And just to think mm-hmm. that I'm only 15 years younger is just mind-boggling. Right, right, right. So, and of course, you know, there's still lynchings going on today. There are still black bodies missing under mysterious circumstances. There are still black bodies who turn up gruesomely murdered under mysterious circumstances. You know, this sort of thing is still happening today. I think we're reticent to actually label it as lynching, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I don't know what else to call it. Right. Right. When someone goes missing in the night and turns up gruesomely murdered, or right. when someone goes missing in the night um, and is found hanging from a tree, what else do you call it? Especially when they don't have any history of you know, any right. struggles. What else do you call right. it? Or with a case like Ahmaud Arbery. I mean, right. clearly an extrajudicial killing. And that's exactly. What, <laughs> That's what a lynching is, is someone deciding they're going to, like, quote, take justice into their own hands. Exactly. As um, wrong and misguided as that justice may be, that's the, um, that's the, uh, the excuse made. Mm-hmm. And um, that's exactly what was done in that case. Exactly. And I think, you know, still today, many people view uh, Trayvon Martin as another example Right. Someone Mm -hmm. harassed, harassed, um, provoked, and as a result of defending himself, was killed. Mm -hmm. For what? Because Mm -hmm. he was walking through a neighborhood wearing a hoodie. Mm -hmm. You know, these situations are are complicated. I think a lot of time, a lot of division comes up. But when it really comes down to it, Whatever whatever your qualms or your reservations are about that particular black life, that's still a life lost that shouldn't have been. Mm-hmm. It's a life lost that shouldn't have been. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's no reason why walking down the street should result in in your death. Mm-hmm. Um, Elijah McClain, Brianna Taylor. Like, I mean, your your mind and your own. And you end up dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Sandra Bland, who who gets you know arrested at a traffic stop and then turns up dead herself. Mm-hmm. You know. Right. And also, if you're talking about criminal justice, you have to acknowledge the situation in our prisons today, mm-hmm. and um, the fact that. Many black people are prosecuted for crimes that many white people are not. And mm-hmm. the great numbers of of people who are imprisoned 
and the impact yes. that has on their communities and their families. Yes. Mass incarceration. Yeah. And, and mass incarceration is, is tied into the same history of, of conflict, convict leasing and re-enslavement, Jim Crow. It's all a part of the, the same history, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, the prison population really begins to spike in the 70s. This is immediately after the fight for civil rights, right? Mm-hmm. Where we see these, you know, conversations about, you know, being tough on crime, the war on drugs, and more often than not, these are, are black and brown bodies that get swept up in this, you know? Mm-hmm. And then we, we attach certain policies to this idea of being tough on crime, like mandatory minimum sentencing and three strikes laws, mm-hmm. um, you know, restrictions on whether or not you can be released from prison, you know, so it's a, it, it is a, an increase in the prison population that really takes off in the 1970s, but the groundwork is laid, laid for this many decades before. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, you get to 1994 and you get the crime bill, mm-hmm. um, and we see sort of just how how many black and brown bodies are swept up in that. And we just see our prison population balloon and balloon and balloon. Mm-hmm. Mm. And there's, and that has so many negative outcomes for black populations. I mean, this, this mass incarceration is directly linked to economic inequality. I mean, if you're in prison, you're not working for your family. And if you were convicted of a felony, then you're going to have an awfully difficult time providing for that family, you know? Right. Not to mention, we talked about voting earlier, but if you're a felon in in most states, you can't vote. So you're disenfranchised too. I mean, it all just pulls together um, and and creates this sort of continued uh, oppression of black and brown people in America. Right. That felony can essentially sentence you to a lifetime of not being able to get a good job (laughs) or much of any job at all. Yes, it absolutely can. They want to employ someone with a felony conviction in their history. Right. Right. And and then you, you, you couple that with the often quoted statistic that, you know, one in three black boys will spend time in prison in this country. One in three. Right. So how many, how many, Black boys are we making felons um, before they even really had a chance to to live life, you know? Mm-hmm. And if you want to talk about the disparity, you know, for for young white men, it's a one in seventeen young white men they spend time in prison, mm. but one in three black boys. Mm. And and we haven't even gotten to, um, you know, the inequalities in our jailing system. I mean, we have roughly twice as many people sitting in local jails waiting tr- awaiting trial. In other words, they're presumed innocent. Right? We have twice as many people right. in jail as we do actually in right. prison. And the reality of that during this COVID-19 crisis, right? when we know our, our prisons are our hotbeds of COVID-19, you have innocent people sitting in jail awaiting trial being exposed to coronavirus and possibly dying from COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And they haven't been found guilty of anything. Mm-hmm. 
it's it's a it's a huge problem. Mm-hmm. Right, and you could also talk about the inequality of legal representation mm-hmm. and the insufficiency of public defender programs and mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. the system. Yeah, yeah. For me, the the just to go back to our our theme of of sort of reconstruction and and how that sort of lays the groundwork for some of the challenges that we see today. You know, reconstruction was a squandered opportunity to try mm-hmm. to to set things right. Mm-hmm. And because we we failed to adequately provide for the the protection and the flourishing of black and brown bodies, because we failed to protect um, black people and brown people from um, systematic violence and terrorism, you know, we see these echoes from the past, even in today, as we continue to grapple with um, many of the challenges that had their foundation laid at the end of the Civil War. Yes. Yeah, I keep thinking of it like imagine a, a child in the foster care system, someone who has is maybe in the system because they have been abused and continues to be abused within the system and then are emancipated from the system and not only are not given any any help or any support coming out of it, but are just then targeted and mm-hmm. and abused over again. I, I think mm-hmm. I, I keep thinking of it as something like that. You have a population that was abused and instead of trying to do something to provide some support that might make up for the abuse, mm-hmm. instead you just sort of blamed the abused for being mm-hmm. abused and mm-hmm considered them a danger yeah yeah you know the the reality of this of this idea of black people being a criminal race and that sort of that idea of being set by the time you get to the 1890s you know that that has ripple effects even into today mm-hmm. you know this year in 2020 you know we've had a lot of conversation about police violence um, we've had a, a lot of conversation about the, ne- the necessity for police reform, and I feel like we'd be remiss if we didn't touch on the mm-hmm. reality that um, a lot of our police forces are also forming during this time period, the late 19th century, during the same time where, where Black people are becoming known as the criminal race, we also have um, that crop up in our policing. And we see increased police presence in black and brown spaces. And, you know, so we're talking about how black life is kind of criminalized and how people are arrested for minor charges, sometimes no charges at all. And then, you know, sentenced to years in prison. Well, I mean, there are disparities written into policing in this country. Mm-hmm. And it's hard, to, mm-hmm. it's hard to get away from that. It's hard to mm-hmm. sidestep that when we're talking about you know, criminal justice reform and its effects. Mm-hmm. So we see that even even into today, um, how we continue to see 
sort of a disproportionate number of Black people in prisons, disproportionate uh, number of Black deaths due to police violence. Um, you know, that disproportionality is something that started in Reconstruction and after Reconstruction. Um, I talked a bit about pig laws and vagrancy laws. You know, one thing that we know is approximately 90% of those arrested on these charges were non-white after Reconstruction. Yeah. Mm. Um, that's 90%, you know. We yeah. want to talk about something that is systemic, something that is written into the fabric. We have to seriously consider that the idea of, you know, who is protected and who is policed mm-hmm. um, comes about in this, in this moment of, of the increased subjugation of Black people, you know. And so then we see that Black and brown bodies are, are the bodies to be policed, that Black people are the criminal race. And we see that those to be protected are those that are part of the privileged class, the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the white Americans of means. Mm-hmm. Right. Because everyone stops to chat with the neighbor outside of the store, but not everyone is arrested for it. Right. Right. And, you know, people routinely go out to the bars for a drink, but not everyone gets, uh, gets arrested. You know, it's, mm-hmm. yeah, these laws disproportionately affect black people. And we've had, mm-hmm. we've had, you know, instances of reform over the years, but we still see even into today that there's still disproportionality in terms of uh, black arrests of uh, murders in police custody like there's still disproportionality there and so we're still dealing with uh with a lot of those challenges mm-hmm. even as the details may shift a bit we're still dealing with those challenges right well because you have a system whose groundwork was laid over generations and mm-hmm. began so many years and generations ago mm-hmm. there's no there's no simple unwinding of it exactly there's no right. It's it's at the root, um, sort of the, and what we're talking about are really like the vestiges of slavery, and, mm-hmm. and we're talking about you know the foundation upon which our our nation was built. There is no easy way to untangle this, mm-hmm. but also untangle it we must, mm-hmm. um, because we can't continue to allow uh, these kinds of injustices to. Uh, to go unabated in our country. We have to continue to work against it. Sort of mm-hmm. one of the most encouraging things for me to come out of 2020 was um, to sort of see and hear more people um, wanting to take a stand and agitating for redress to um, these disparities, to these injustices that are still present mm-hmm. today. And I think, you know, if we are going to call ourselves people of justice, we have to be willing to ask those why questions, and we have to be willing to get to the root of the problem, even if getting there is uncomfortable, and even Mm -hmm. if we don't like what we find. I hope you found that segment of our Reconstruction series interesting and enlightening. To learn more about Dee Dee Miller, please follow her on Instagram 
at dds.journey. To learn more about Catholics United for Black Lives, please check out their website, www.cubl.org, and follow them on Facebook and Instagram at C-U-B-L-O-R-G. You can find links to all of those accounts in the show notes. In next week's episode, I'll be talking with David Hencherik, an electrical engineer who has worked in the telecommunications industry for 36 years. David and I will be discussing the controversy regarding free speech and, quote, big tech, the technology companies that make our internet and social media usage possible. In particular, David and I will be talking through the often discussed, but perhaps seldom understood, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Thank you for listening to this episode of More Than Politics. I hope you'll subscribe to it and that if you like it, you'll share it and leave a rating or review so others can find it. My name is Julie Varner Walsh. I'm your host. You can learn more about me by checking out my blog at thesewallsblog.com and you can follow me on Instagram at Julie V. Walsh and Facebook at More Than Politics Podcast. This podcast theme music is by purple-planet.com.